Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 85. I got this one in just before I'm heading out to my long, where I will go to hike Mount Bromo and check out some waterfalls and some of the cool things that East Java has to offer. Very excited about that. Um, then going to return to Jakarta for just a couple days before I head out of here. I'm thinking about Taiwan. I'm Pretty sure I've probably mentioned that to you in the past. But uh, yeah, it's been a really solid two months here. I've had a really great, diverse group of people on the podcast. And so I want to thank you guys for for sticking with me uh, in the sense that I've had people who specialize in a lot of different things, all of which I don't specialize in. <laughs> so uh, nonviolence in the Muslim community, refugees, human trafficking, and then today's guest, we talked about palm oil and ecological conservation. I'm not an expert in any of these things. I do my best, but thank you for sticking with me as I try to sort of make my way through those conversations without sounding like an absolute fool. I'm very happy to be able to have this platform and to be able to put these stories out there and this information uh, and to help educate you and at times perhaps to entertain you. So thank you, Voyagers. My guest today is Eric Wecker. I believe in Dutch you pronounce the W like a V, so Wecker. He works for an organization called Aid Environment, and he has put in over 20 years of work in preventing deforestation, in ecological conservation, and in sustainable palm oil cultivation. This is Palm oil is something that I've heard a lot about while I've been here in Indonesia. And when I came to Jakarta, I had a bunch of goals set. And the goals were really topics. I knew I wanted to talk about trafficking. I knew I wanted to talk about um, refugees, specifically the Rohingya. Um, I knew that I wanted to talk about palm oil. And I've been quite successful in that manner in that one of these last podcasts here, I've been able to talk about palm oil. Now, I've mentioned this in the past, but I've solved it. I think I'm still pretty hardline about the issues I care about, but I've softened just slightly in the fact that the answer isn't always just dead stop right now, like just a cold break from it. And so what comes up in this conversation with Eric is it's very easy to, and perhaps rightfully so, to say no more palm oil, it's done. But as he accurately points out, okay, well, Indonesia stops it dead here, Brazil's going to sell it. And likely with the new political administration that's coming in Brazil, they're going to sell it. And so how can it be done in a sustainable and manageable way here in Indonesia in that the ecology or the environment is sustained and protected, the biodiversity is protected, the labor rights of the people are not exploited and Indonesia can profit. So I think ultimately those things are the goals of a very complicated and complex matter. Eric helps to break down the 
the history of palm oil sales, uh, what some of the problems are, and what some of the sustainable solutions are, and maybe a glimpse into into the future. He was a really bright guy. I uh, had a great time having a conversation with him, and uh, thank you to Eric for giving me this time today before he heads off to some very, very important work. Okay, if you are somebody who wants to and is able to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon. Patreon is a monthly subscription service where you can give 50 cents, $1, $5, $5,000, whatever you have within your means to support the podcast, to keep the episodes coming, to keep the stories coming, the information, the education. If you cannot support financially, I totally understand. Uh, if you do have some uh, disposable income, there are much better causes to uh, contribute to than mine. But you can still support in that you can subscribe to the podcast, you can tell your friends about it, and you can leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes or the podcast application of your choice. That actually goes a pretty long way in getting me into some algorithms and to getting some eyes on the podcast. Again, I've mentioned this in the last two, but we've had a fantastic month here. It continues to grow day by day. Uh, So I'm really excited about that. It's been great to have access to some really fantastic and interesting people. And I hope to keep these, the good times rolling and the, the entertaining and informative podcasts rolling. So... Thank you to all you listeners. I hope you enjoy this one with Eric. First, Eric, I want to say thank you. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, so I'm appreciative of uh, the time that you have to give today. Maybe a good place to start is sort of um, a condensed version of your journey to Indonesia. Uh, how and why are you here? I see. Yeah, well, thank you. I um, became involved in Southeast Asian forestry issues in the early 90s. Um, when I studied, I, I studied geography and uh, learned about uh, the fate of the forest in, in the tropical regions. And it really affected me to realize that we were losing such enormously biodiverse and unique ecosystems to logging, you know, timber production or uh, conversion into large-scale uh, agricultural mo- monocultures. So. Um, yeah, yeah, I started to study alternatives to that type of large-scale uh, forest use and learned how communities are making use of, of the forest in a more sustainable manner. Mm. And, uh, yeah, all this started in the Philippines, actually. Really? Um, but the Philippines um, uh, yeah, had lost so much of its forest uh, over time already. Um, I came to learn about Malaysia and Indonesia. Yeah. and realized that also the connections to the European markets were much stronger than the Philippines uh, has. Okay, so perhaps my... So I think maybe my knowledge of this is a bit rudimentary. Sure. Um, and maybe my technical and scientific language and vocabulary isn't so strong. I will do my best. So that's just to preface this for the listeners and say have some patience with me. Um, 
one of the big issues that I hear a lot of people talking about. Uh, a couple of weeks after I got to Jakarta, some Greenpeace activists were arrested, uh, is palm oil. And um, the effect that has on the the biodiversity mm-hmm. and the uh, ecology of the Borneo landmass and other parts of Indonesia. And so that was one of the, the big reasons I wanted to reach out to you. A- am I correct in thinking that palm oil or, or palm fruit trees originated from Africa? Yeah, originally it's an African uh, plant species, palm species, yes. And was then transplanted here because the climate is suitable for sustained growth of these? Yeah, ironically, it was introduced as an ornamental plant by uh, really? my uh, fellow Dutch people. Really? Uh, yeah, the colonial uh, uh, rulers, they brought it in to plant it in the botanical gardens of Bogor, oh. very near to my office nowadays. Oh, and wow. only later they discovered the economic uh, potential of palm oil. Mm. Um, and so the first plantation was uh, actually created by a, by a Dutch uh, uh, venture called PT Smart. The acronym is actually partially Dutch. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a, a long history related to my own country here. Yeah. And so at, at, at what point in the history does, you know, do companies or governments realize, okay, this is going to be quite a profitable plant, both for the, the fruit, uh, the sugar and the processed oil? Right, right. Uh, it doesn't produce sugar, actually. That's another oh. palm. Uh, oh, really? Palm okay. Sugar is another uh, other palm. Um, the old palm produces primarily uh, uh, fat, oh. edible fat. Um, that is used for cosmetics, for food products, and uh, also biofuels. Um, oh. It took quite a while. The first plantation, the commercial plantation, was planted in North Sumatra in the 1930s. And it was not until the late 1980s that large-scale expansion took off. Um, really? That was with the support of the World Bank. Mm. And uh, they ex- based their experience and their market analysis on uh, quite a successful expansion program in Malaysia where all palm plantations were uh, planted in a million hectares of primary forest um, to settle the Malay communities and supposedly also communists uh, to settle them in controllable uh, agricultural villages. And so I'm assuming the World Bank's view on that too is that this is going to help with economic development in these countries? Absolutely. Um, And uh, it is true that it did bring a lot of economic benefits um, to rural people, but also big business. Uh, All power is capital investment. Uh, that explains why the World Bank was was sponsoring this mm. industry. Um, it's while there is, you know, the, always uh, the argument that small farmers um, are involved in the palm oil business. It is ultimately a big business industry uh, because it's so capital intensive. Yeah. Uh, farmers cannot afford to build their own processing facilities, so they wow. always depend on uh, big businesses or government businesses to supply them a market, to give them a market. Are any of these businesses tied to uh, international companies or like uh, are any of these palm oil businesses funded by uh, European companies or American companies? Yes, yes. So uh-huh. th- this is a true global business. Although, wow. yeah, Malaysia and Indonesia control 85% of all production. 
um, the involvement of uh, the international market is, is very in, uh, diverse. Mm. So I mentioned the World Bank from yeah, your country, the United States. Um, uh, all the Dutch banks were, and they still are, heavily involved in financing all sorts of uh, plantation company groups. Um, palm oil is sold in Europe and also the US nowadays. Um, and then, of course, people will highlight, oh, yeah, well, how about India? How about uh, oh, really? Indonesia itself, right, and China? Well, a lot of the internationally known brands in these countries are very familiar to you and me, uh, Pizza Hut and uh, Kraft and uh, oh, you really? name it, right? Any food product or any detergent likely has palm oil in it. Wow. And so these so-called, uh, you know, obscure markets that would not care for environmental awareness uh, in India or China are actually also surfaced by these large brands um, that operate globally. Wow. So... Uh, it's, uh, it's a true international business. Do you have any sort of sense, um, and I'm sorry if some of these questions are sort of beyond your, your purview, but do you have any sort of sense of, for Malaysia or Indonesia, like what percentage of the GDP is made up of palm oil sales? Uh, I don't know that by heart, so okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, but yeah, but I'm assuming it. it's uh, a substantial yeah, amount of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, after oil and gas and electronics, mm. I think in both countries it's number three. So before maybe we get into some of the um, ecological concerns and some of the reasons why people are sort of anti-palm oil and what can be done about it, I'm assuming that the solution isn't cut off palm oil entirely because that would then have a pretty crippling effect on the economies of Malaysia and Indonesia. Yes, and it would also... um, uh create demand for edible oils in other places, such as uh, Brazil, mm. where also large areas of um, Cerrado uh, and maybe now with the new government, uh, also Amazon again, will be opened up for soya. Wow, yeah. So soya is, is far less productive per hectare than is palm oil. Oh. So the impact of a, of a ban on palm oil would be, would be very negative across the board. Um, Besides, a uh, lot of local communities have already embraced palm oil in Indonesia. Mm. Um, but they want that business to be just to them, of course. Of course. Conservation NGOs want that development to be beneficial to the environment and, and conservation objectives. Mm. And that is what a very large community of uh, activists and NGOs uh, and, and, and businesses are trying to achieve already for quite a few years now. Yeah. So let's talk maybe first about ecological concerns. Um, Again, with my rudimentary knowledge, uh, what I'm aware of is that a lot of deforestation takes place in order to cultivate palm oil. Yep. That's accurate? Yes, it still happens. Okay. And that's simply because it needs a large area of land and that land doesn't exist already, so you have to clear the forest. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, a regular concession for all palm plantations would be anywhere between ten to 20,000 hectares. Wow. Um, then every company group would have easily 10 to 20 of those plantation units, so their, their land bank can extend from... 100,000 to even half a million hectares. There's some companies that even have, have even bigger land banks. So 
uh, although palm oil is very productive per hectare, um, it still requires a lot of space. Now, as an investor, you can, or a government agency, you can choose to acquire community land that's already being used for rice or rubber. Uh, but that's a lot of fuss. Communities may not want to surrender their land or right. they may ask a high price. So what has happened is that both uh, governments in Malaysia and Indonesia have basically uh, released a lot of reserved forest land for the expansion of the plantation industry. And therefore they, wow. uh, yeah, they degazetted um, what was supposed to be permanent natural tropical forest for the forestry industry, converted that to plantation businesses. Mm. And that conversion is very dramatic because yeah, companies will just clear, they used to clear the full 10,000 hectares in the plantation area that they were given. Um, the sustainability debate has now led many of these companies to commit to no longer do that. Yeah. Uh, initially, they would then do studies into uh, conservation values and they would retain some riparian buffer zones next to rivers or a burial site for communities. Oh, wow. um, but more recently, the requirements have, have tightened up and basically companies are not supposed to clear any more forests now. Yeah, it's still a struggle to achieve that. So that was Jukawi, right? Put a moratorium on uh, deforesting, on deforestation? Yes, for new permit areas. So there are still valid permits where companies are currently still developing plantations. Uh, This is where (coughs) the market actually strengthens government policy. Hmm. Um, In fact... A lot of this work is inspired by uh, the American uh, experience with market campaigning, Mm. which was once developed by the labor unions um, uh, to get big car manufacturers, if I'm not mistaken, to uh, adopt uh, better labor terms. So Mm. uh, they would go to the customers of uh, these car companies and, and tell them to not buy a Ford, for example, until... Uh, the company would meet their their, uh, employment terms. Um, That market campaign model is also used in this palm oil discourse. Uh, And that happens because governments have been so supportive of this palm oil industry that they are not regulating the industry anymore. Mm. They are just their marketing and promotion agencies. So so it would seem. This is why civil society has used market functioning. So the links to the ultimate buyers in Europe or the investors from exactly, the United yeah. States to pressure the management and the owners of these businesses to change their practices and hopefully also to get good forces in government to make use of that to start to regulate the industry. Um, it's, it works, but it's very time-consuming. And, yeah. and um, what we see is that, yes, comp- governments are catching up with what happened in the market, but uh, uh, there's now still uh, no streamlining between the two dynamics. So both are comp- claiming to do the right thing. It isn't very helpful. Yeah, and uh, you know we don't have to get too political, but um, right now with the political situation in the United States, it's very much like America first, right? Um, Brazil's new elect has basically stated Brazil first. 
again, without getting too far into the weeds here, with the election next year in Indonesia, I know one of the candidates is taking a Indonesia first approach, right? And with yeah. a lot of these things, it's like, okay, so we need to um, strengthen our economy, and that might mean rolling back uh, environmental protections, um, you know, uh, waste regulations and things like that, because the bottom line is the dollar, and that's going to strengthen our economy. So I'm, I'm assuming that's something that uh, would be a bit of an uphill climb in, in the work that you're doing and the work that activists are doing for this. Yes, <laughs> of course. It's very difficult to... Um forecast political developments of this type. Yeah. Um, they come and go, of course, uh, this type of uh, rulers. Um, at least by now, a big portion of the private sector has already committed to not oh. uh, allow any further forest destruction or peatland development. So even if we get a government here in Indonesia that wants to open up the whole of Papua, there's not going to be a whole lot of appetite in the private sector to do it because they know that if they start to buy land in, in, in Papua, the international community will see it, right? This satellite imagery is there and uh, there's yeah. no way you can hide it. If you clear a tree nowadays, satellite imagery will identify it. Even today, if somebody cuts a forest today, uh, this afternoon, we'll be able to see it. So... Um, that is the good thing of working both at, uh, uh, with the private sector as well as with government. So you can compensate for yeah. uh, either side if it's going, going south, as it were. Has that been suggested to open up uh, vast areas of Papua? Yes, of course. Really? Yes, it is. Yes, a few years back, uh, many permits were already issued wow. under the previous government. And it was going to happen. And companies were quite happily beginning to clear uh, the forest and uh, but uh, but thanks to developments in the marketplace uh, a lot of this land clearing has been stopped now okay yeah um, when you have a palm oil plantation I've seen uh, you know some opponents of palm oil cultivation say that uh, the burning of forests leads to air pollution. And I think in 2013, Singapore had like this smog that they attributed to the burning. Uh, does the burning of the forest occur just in the initial clearing of the land to cultivate palm oil? Or um, are trees not perpetually producing palm oil and you have to then do like slash and burn agriculture and then return to the land later? <clears throat> All right, yeah. Um, Yes, these fires, they, they keep returning almost annually. And every five to six, seven years, we have a, a very dry season uh, linked to the El Nino event. Mm. And uh, that's when fires tend to run completely out of control. Now, up to the late 90s, it was perfectly legal for any company to completely clear the land by the use of fire. Mm. Um, and that triggered one of those very intense uh, haze events, as we call them here, okay. uh, the haze, um, <laughs> um, where for months and months in a row, the whole of Southeast Asia was covered in smoke. It was, it was really horrible. Um, at that time, definitely a lot of the companies were burning, but it's also related to very poor land management in many years before that, uh, intensive logging 
drainage of peatland areas, um, a culture of also small scale agriculture to not use fertilizer, but instead burn biomass to fertilize uh, with ashes. Um, so that is why we still keep seeing these fires reappearing, even though the government has prohibited it uh, since 97, uh, incrementally so. Um, some companies will still continue to burn. We, we do see that occasionally. But also because the vegetation cover and soil has been so heavily impacted by overuse or misuse, uh, they easily catch fire and droughts are getting more severe also with climate change. So it is, it's, it's a mixed bag of influences that causes this problem to reappear every, every dry season. Mm. I've also seen that, so it's a, quite a logical um, conclusion to come to that if you're clearing forests, you're going to be clearing habitat for wild animals. Uh, I recently was in Kuching, and I went to uh, an orangutan um, sanctuary, essentially, there. Uh, one of the arguments I've seen is that not only is there loss of habitat, but when you create these road networks and sort of uh, in routes to the forest, you open up access for poachers and animal traffickers to then get into the forest and to, uh, you know, traffic animals like orangutans. Uh, is this something that you're familiar with? Of course, yes. Um, again, it's a mixed bag of causes yeah. that leads to this dramatic loss of wildlife. Uh, I think just yesterday, WWF published a report that says that we lost 65% uh, of all mammals in the world already since 1970. Whoa. It's really dramatic. And Southeast Asia is particularly um, uh, dramatic because uh, of the island structure. Mm -hmm. So it's very uh, accessible uh, compared to a big landmass like the Amazon. Um, logging. Uh, of course, eh? selective logging, where they take the big trees from the forest, uh, had an impact on wildlife, but not, not across the board. Mm. Some species benefit. But when you clear the forest completely to plant uh, oil palm, um, there's no habitat left. So unless special conservation areas are identified and uh, well managed. And and we've gone through the whole circus of uh, uh, seeing these areas identified and that's subsequently lost to fires or uh, intensive hunting or people move in to clear it. Because, yeah, there's a continuous land grab going on here. Uh, people are looking to make a living and forest is not valued for its wildlife. Mm. It, it is not people are preoccupied with making a living. Um, and what we're now trying to do is to find uh, a middle ground. Uh, first of all, we're hoping to, to see more companies really live up to their commitments not to clear more forest. And what they have left in their land bank uh, to have that properly managed for uh, conservation purposes, uh, but also for the benefits of communities. Yeah, it's interesting. And maybe it seems like a simple question, or maybe it's actually kind of too big of a question, but like, how do you get corporations and companies to care when like the, their very life's blood is dollars, right? Their, their function is making money. Um, how do you get them to be ethical? 
Um, <clears throat> well, there's, there's uh, I mentioned the market campaign mechanism mm. already. So um, if you take apart a market, mm. sooner or later they will surrender. They're going to have to care, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that has been successfully applied in uh, oil palm as well as uh, pulp and paper. But it's not just that. I think um, uh, companies in Southeast Asia are expected to contribute to development at large. They are not expected to just make money for their shareholders. We have a kind of nationalist capitalism in Southeast Asia. It's very different from the American model. It says that... uh, the, the government, who was previously, previously a very big player in industries as a shareholder or even owner, full owner of big businesses, they've delegated this responsibility of development to the private sector. Mm. So they expect big businesses like Sinamas and, and uh, Wilmar to deliver development for the people on the ground. Now, and, because of the sustainability debate, climate change, biodiversity loss, there has been increasing willingness to also consider the need to yeah, be environmentally responsible. Mm. Um, it doesn't bring them a lot of direct benefit, but it helps them at least prevent from being uh, excluded from cer- certain markets. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that's still how market campaigning works, right? If NGOs are not satisfied with the progress made by some of these big companies, then they will pressure the company through market pressure. If governments are not happy with the development deliveries of these companies, they will also give them trouble. So, yes, these are very large corporations with a lot of power, but they are being pushed around left, center, and right. Mm. And the work that you're doing, I think I read that um, you're not... Um, you're not just like petitioning the government, you're actually working on strategy with companies, how to um, how to farm essentially sustainably? Yeah, yeah. So my organization, Aid Environment, is a foundation. So we yeah, we want to promote sustainable uh, landscapes, sustainable commodity businesses. Uh, my origin is from the Netherlands, that's where my main office is, and what I saw in the 90s was that a lot of companies were claiming to be responsible, but at the same time mm-hmm. they were sourcing products from Indonesia that I knew were from forest destruction or banks that were investing in, in plantation businesses that I knew uh, had caused fires. So from that perspective, my organization wants to make sure that Dutch consumers don't get it cheated by false marketing. At the same time, we want to help our Indonesian counterparts, um, NGOs, to to pursue their agenda of sustainability, Mm. which for many years was more about social justice than it was about environmental uh, management. and, uh, because in the early years, when uh, Suharto was still uh, leading this country, it was all about human rights. Mm. And there was so much forest left still. So, uh, um, Over the years, uh, we, we've worked with a lot of NGOs to get big businesses adopt environmental sustainability. Um, and after a while, these companies came to us and said, well, 
how should we do it? How mm. can we do this? And uh, uh, now our organization is uh, able to entertain that kind of request. But as a foundation, we will make sure that we uh, continue to serve our original objectives. And that's my question for you too. <laughs> what does sustainability look like uh, in the palm oil world? Like, how, how is it done? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that is the one million dollar question. That, uh, <laughs> We think can only be determined in a multi-stakeholder dialogue. Um, as we discussed earlier, you know, a boycott of palm oil is not gonna deliver environmental benefits. Uh, but to, to just to let it go for free, you know, and expand wherever it wants to expand is also not good. So you need to carefully consider different contexts. In Papua, there is so much forest that. <clears throat> it would seem impossible to develop any oil palm there. Uh, but in Kalimantan, for example, there's so much degraded land that mm. could be developed for uh, plantations and add a lot of value to um, the landscape. So for us, sustainability is um, different in different contexts, but overall our approach is that we want to stop industry from imposing its business on the landscape imposing plantations onto um, existing land uses and instead integrate itself. So it's, it's a different emphasis. Uh, they become one of the players in an existing landscape where there's already local communities and conservation interests and other needs uh, surfaced by stakeholders. Opam definitely has a role to play uh, because it is so economically beneficial, uh, but it cannot any longer take all the land and completely uh, change that landscape and dominate it. So um, I think that is generally a model that's accepted by uh, many, but uh, it, it, it's not easy to figure out how exactly it works out in practice. Yeah, I think that's kind of a common theme that I've had in a lot of these episodes is that there's, it's easy to have kind of a knee-jerk reaction to something. Say, look at that, that's bad. Um, but it's much more complicated than it looks on the surface. And so as we've mentioned, you can't just stop it because that's going to then create a chain reaction. Um, it's still going to be sold in other places. So how can it be managed in a sustainable way? I'm also wondering, uh, a lot of my friends here are very much like pro-Indonesian businesses, right? So let's go to the local market rather than uh, the Western-owned, I don't know, uh, like ranch market is one of them or... Um, I don't know, lote or something. Yeah. And um, because the money then goes into Indonesian pockets, is there a way to maybe sort of um, transfer <laughs> some of the operations away from multinational corporations into strictly Indonesian hands to keep the money here and help with you know, development of uh, the eastern part of the country and the strengthening of the rupiah? And is that a reality at all? Mm. Well... Um, the foreign involvement uh, in the plantation industry itself is actually not as big as sometimes depicted. Okay. Um, of course, there's a lot of Malaysian investment, um, and, and of course, they do siphon off uh, profits and channel it back to either Singapore or Malaysia. Um, but 
Uh, in the early years, it was sometimes su suggested that half of the industry was controlled by Malaysia. It's not true. It's, it's a more uh, moderate involvement, in fact. And Indonesia benefits from all the know-how that is being brought in from that country. Similarly, Indonesia benefits from all the capital investment that comes from overseas banks and investors. Um, it's hard to see the relationship between these foreign investments or involvement and, and the sustainability discourse. Um, if we leave it to Indonesian players only, I'm pretty sure it's going to be quite hard to mm. get them to adopt sustainability. And in fact, we're already seeing that we're going to start a program, in fact, that um, holds uh, Indonesian players more accountable for uh, sustainability in this industry because, frankly, they are lagging behind compared to foreign investors. Really? Yes. No Malaysian investors nowadays operating in Indonesia would do so by clearing large areas of forest. Uh, oh, they okay. will be caught and they will be butchered. Really? By local politicians and uh, wow. NGOs. So, uh, nationalism is very strong in this country, and yeah. uh, that's actually holding back some sustainability as well. So, um, actually, I agree that that area needs attention, but I don't think it's helpful to exclude the international uh, players from okay. the game. That makes sense. Have you? So you've been doing this work for over 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Wow, <laughs> fighting the good fight, man. Um, have you faced any like strong resistance to the work that you're doing? Yeah, of course, uh, it, it does happen. Uh, it's part of the process. Mm. Uh, but generally speaking, um, we cannot compare Southeast Asia with uh, Latin America, uh, where it's very common for people, for activists uh, to get shot or mm -hmm. otherwise murdered. Um, Intimidation happens in Southeast Asia, but uh, I think in many ways we're, we're very lucky uh, compared to Central and Latin America. Uh, people are actually quite free to say uh, what they want to say. Uh, they're not necessarily always taken seriously, but that's quite different from you know all the uh, violent uh, responses that you can get, get elsewhere. Yeah. You know, uh, Indonesia is developing, right? And with that, I've, I've been able to talk to a lot of people who are doing work in, in, in different ways. It could be economic and, and business development. I had somebody on here who's helping with uh, disaster response and like the physical infrastructure that needs to be developed and then also the systems that are in place. So th there's, it's an exciting country and Jakarta is an exciting place because it's sort of a meeting grounds for a lot of those minds. And so I get access to people like them and, and, and people like you. Um, but at the same time, like, like we mentioned sort of at the outset, there's almost like a, a return globally at the same time to quite conservative values and sort of um, bottom line business where the business matters before anything else. We've talked about this already. Uh, in quite a practical way, are you optimistic about the future? I mean, uh, since I've been here, you, you mentioned the, the animal loss. Uh, I've seen reports since I've been here about now table salts are coming up uh, in tests as having plastics in them, microplastics, 
at there was this global report about how the timeline for the rise in temperature is much shorter than scientists initially anticipated. Uh, are you hopeful? <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to the really big issues, climate change, global biodiversity loss, uh, I am very worried. I'm very obviously, uh, like many others, deeply worried with regards to the change that is happening in this palm oil industry. Um, I think uh, there's lots of grounds to be optimistic. You know, it, it's less than 10 years ago that commodity traders would just completely deny that they have any responsibility for sustainability because they said, we only trade, we buy, we sell, that's all we do. We have nothing to do with sustainability. That has completely changed. And let's not forget that commodity business, global trade and commodities runs the world at present. Um, so dramatic changes there. We've seen these commodity traders not only embrace the need for sustainability, they've also become transparent about who they buy from and who they sell to. That type of information is essential to know who's doing business with whom and who is making a claim in the market that's not credible considering the supplier's activities on the ground. Mm. So <clears throat> leverage for change is much better than it used to be. Commitment is stronger. Uh, it's a pity it, you know, in those 20 years that I worked on this uh, subject, it's a pity that it has come at the expense of so much forest and other values. Yeah. Would not have, that's not necessary, right? It, it could have gone a lot faster, but yeah, that's a reality. Um, of course, we have political ups, political ups and downs. So, uh, like I said, uh, if politics takes a dramatic turn like it does in Brazil, at least the market has become more responsible and more accountable, uh, whereas previously it was not. So even if Indonesia were to completely change uh, its government, then there's that backup opportunity. and. Uh, Similarly, where government change seems to be impossible, uh, we see in Malaysia that after 61 years the government was changed mm. through democratic means without a drop of blood. Uh, that's really hopeful yeah. uh, when it comes to democracy. So, I, th I think really these these nationalist movements have uh, we've had them in the Netherlands as well. Um, I think they will it will blow over. The message that they're sending is that in a globalized world politicians and businesses need to make sure that they share the benefit. It cannot just be for the shareholders. Yeah. And like I said, in Indonesia, companies are expected to share that benefit. It's just that there's so much distrust that it's very hard for them to communicate what they are doing and what they have achieved. And they also still need to improve a lot. So um, there again, I'm actually optimistic that all will be fine in the end, so long as um, those uh, with power to make a change take the responsibility and do not deny their, their uh, contributions. Yeah. I think maybe that's a, a beautiful pin to put on the end of the conversation. Um, if people want to find out about um, information, support the cause in any way, donate, uh, put in man hours, how can people find out 
more about uh, what you do and what your uh, organization does. All right. Yeah, people can visit our website at uh, aidenvironment.org. There's a section specially dedicated to our work in Southeast Asia. Um, And another um, platform where you can learn a lot about sustainable palm oil is uh, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil website, rspo.org. And of course, the different companies and NGOs and all our other partners and uh, others in, in, this, um, in this struggle. Awesome. So what I will do, as always, for people listening is they can check the show notes for this episode. They'll find links to all of those things that you just mentioned and they can easily access that information. Yeah. Um, yeah, Eric, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Tim. Cheers. That's it, Voyagers. This was episode 85 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Eric Vecker for coming on the podcast today and giving me an education and hopefully giving you an education into palm oil and sustainability. You can check the show notes for this episode to find the links that Eric mentioned at the end of our conversation. You will also find a link to Patreon if you are able to support this podcast. I would greatly, greatly appreciate that, and I can send you some goodies. I got all sorts of stickers printed up while I'm here in Jakarta. can send out postcards and maybe a gift from overseas to you if you're able to contribute in any way. If not, I got you. I appreciate you. Thank you to everyone for listening. Go out there, create your own adventure, go on your own voyage, and as always, folks, please take care of each other.